And today we're going to read from verses 1 to 13, uh, which this is a passage that kind of completes that whole section uh, starting in chapter 14, which was about the weak and the strong and uh, working through disputable matters. Um, we'll um, read from chapter 15, verse 1 to 13. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbour for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. <clears throat> Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, <clears throat> The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I have a question for you today. Uh, how does the invisible God make himself visible in the world today? Okay, in other words, if, if God is real, how can you see him? Okay, how can you know that he's there? What is the evidence uh, for God? Now, there are many ways to answer that question, uh, but I just want to talk about one of them today. And uh, one of the pointers to the reality of God today is when his church, made up of a vast array of very incompatible people, are united together in the gospel. See, that's what this passage is saying. Uh, this passage, uh, all the way through, there are references to the glory of God and, and seeing the glory of God. And the way it's seen, according to this passage, is when incompatible people welcome each other in Christ and are united together in Him. And so I guess the opposite is also true, that nothing brings more dishonour to God when His people are hopelessly divided. And so unity in the church, it's so important. And uh, we've been learning about that uh, throughout Romans um, chapter 14. Remember Romans 14 was where Paul deals with a very practical uh, matter in the church of Rome, uh, where you've got uh, Jewish believers and Gentile believers uh, struggling to get along. But behind that is really the, probably the eighth wonder of the world in the first century because here we have a church made up 
of two of the most incompatible people on the planet, Jews and Gentiles. Okay? And here are people saved by Jesus from such different walks of life, you know, such different lifestyles, that it would seem that it would be impossible for them to be members of the one church. And yet, miraculously, they were. Now, of course, there, there were struggles with that, and Paul's helping them uh, work through those struggles. But the one thing Paul never does, he never encourages them to go their separate ways. Okay? Even, even though it might have felt like they were incompatible on some points, not once does Paul say, well, you Jewish people, you go over there and you start a Jewish church, and you Gentiles, you go over here and start a Gentile church. Now, that might dissolve all of the disputes in an instant, but where would the glory be in that? And that's the point of this passage. There is glory, God's glory is seen when incompatible people are united together in Christ. And see, the same gospel that united Jews and Gentiles in that first century, it's the gospel that unites us today. And because there's more at stake in unity than just getting along, even though that is very nice, uh, but there's far more at stake. God's glory is at stake, and therefore it's so important that we today are united, that there is no division among us. And therefore, we need to know how unity works. We need to know how it's maintained. And that's what this passage is all about. Romans 15 teaches us how unity works, and we learn three things. We, we learn the practice of unity in verses 1 and 2. We learn the power to unity in verses 3 to 7. And we also learn the plan for unity in verses 8 to 13. So let's, let's have a look at those three things. So first, the practice of unity. Uh, verses 1 to 2, it says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Okay, let us, each of us please his neighbour for his good to build him up. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> this idea of not pleasing ourselves, it shows us that the practice of unity is very straightforward, but very hard to do. Okay, it's kind of like um, losing weight. You know, lots of people are thinking about that at this time of year because Christmas has just been uh, recently. But see, losing weight, it's really straightforward. It just comes down to three things. Diet, exercise, and time. <laughs> see, if you <clears throat> eat less than you uh, expend of energy, give it some time, and what happens? You lose weight. It's that straightforward. And yet it's not straightforward because it's hard. It's hard to persevere. And it's just like that with unity. See, unity is really straightforward according to these verses. It's just one thing. Stop pleasing yourself. <laughs> Put other people's interests ahead of your own. And hey presto, unity. But it's not that easy. Not that easy to persevere because it would seem that we are hardwired to please ourselves. It would seem that in our fallen humanity that pleasing ourselves is really the default operating system of our hearts. And therefore, unity is harder to maintain than we would like. In fact, uh, because of the default mode of our heart, of wanting to please ourselves, it means that even when we you know, join a church or when we attend a church, uh, when we interact with other people in the church, 
that often the number one question on our mind is, will this make me happy? Okay, will this meet my needs? Will this be convenient for me? Will this suit my tastes, my preferences, my opinions, uh, my expectations? Now, if, if we were talking about um, going to a restaurant or if we were talking about booking a bed and breakfast, they're the sort of questions you need to ask. But they're not the questions to ask when it comes to joining a church, or any community for that matter, actually. Uh, you can't be part of a community if your main operation or the main way you go about it is pleasing yourself. It actually doesn't work. And uh, especially in a community based on the gospel of Jesus. Uh, see, if we approach the church and if we approach relationships in the church with this consumer mentality of what will please me, then no church will ever work for us. In fact, just when you think you've found the perfect church, you ruin it. <laughs> That's how it works. Or another way to think about it, imagine, imagine a ship with its, with its engine going absolutely flat out and it's pointed directly towards some rocks. What's going to happen if you just let it go? It's going to end up in little pieces. And that's exactly how any community goes when the people of that community are operating with this framework of my framework saying, what will please me? How will my needs be met? It will end up in little pieces. There will be division. Now, if we look a little bit more closely at these verses, though, so look at verse 1, we, we see that not pleasing ourselves, this is actually one of the main implications of chapter 14, which was all about how the weak and the strong get along. Remember the weak and the strong? Uh, you know, when it comes to disputable matters, there, there are some that Paul calls uh, weak believers and some that Paul calls strong believers. And in the church at Rome, the weak believers happened to be uh, the, the Jewish Christians who still felt bound by uh, the ceremonial law. So eating particular foods and, and avoiding others. Uh, they thought that certain sacred days that were part of the Jewish calendar were still binding on them, even though they'd heard taught that the ceremonial law was fulfilled in Christ and therefore no longer um, binding on believers. But see, they still felt bound by it. They felt constricted. And so from that, we, we learned that uh, weak, the weak are Christians whose understanding of how to apply God's word, it's not as well developed as those that Paul calls strong. Uh, the, the weak believer's conscience tends to be bound by more rules and restrictions than God actually mandates. And the other thing we learned about the weak believer is that if you press them hard enough, you know, if you put enough pressure on them, they will actually go against their um, opinions. But that, would, of course, would be to violate their conscience, which is always a wrong thing to do. And so now when we get to chapter 15, verse 1, we actually see that it's the strong, okay, the ones who, who, who know their freedom in Christ, who understand that, who have worked through all of the issues, they're the ones who have the obligation to put themselves out for the weak. It says, we who are strong have an obligation to, to listen, bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. To bear with the failings, what does that mean? It actually means the ability to, uh, to, to see life from the perspective of the weak, 
It's the ability to look at, you know, for example, the food, the food issue, to look at it from the Jewish perspective in that, in that church of Rome. You know, the Gentiles had to do that. Uh, you know, Paul's not saying you have to adopt the um, way of life of the week, but what you do need to do is make adjustments in your life, okay? Change the way you do things so that you can make room for them, so that you can befriend them, so that you can have them around for a meal and have them as part of your life in a way that doesn't offend them and in a way that doesn't stumble them. See, the strong are not to please ourselves. Verse 2 says, Let us please his neighbour for his good to build him up. And so our main concern when it comes to church and how we do church, how we do relationships, our main concern must be not what will please me, but rather what will help you. Okay, what will build you up in the faith? How can I invest in your life? How can I make adjustments to do that to help you grow in the faith? See, it's a mentality of serving, putting other, others' needs ahead of our own. Now, this is actually the opposite of how most organisations operate. Uh, most organisations privilege the strong. Everything is done to benefit the most established, you know, those with the most influence, those who have been there uh, the longest. And so their preferences will trump everyone else's. It's how most organisations operate. And sadly, sometimes churches can operate like that. You know, just operate like the world, the same principles of the world. And uh, you can see that sometimes where, you know, churches can be set up to, to all the preferences of the people who have been there the longest. And then there's not a willingness to change. There's not a willingness to embrace new people who don't share the same preferences on all these peripheral matters. And so it ends up being a closed community to anyone but the establishment, which is completely back to front. There needs to be a, a willingness to embrace those even who are different, those who don't you know, understand all the ins and outs. In fact, it's interesting that Paul uses the word neighbour in verse 2. Do you notice that? Let each of us please his neighbour. Why does he use the word neighbour in this context? You would expect him to say, let each of us please his brother or sister for their good. But he uses this broad term, neighbour. And the reason he does that is because we're never to be thinking just about inside. There's also people on the outside, people that we want to reach with the gospel. And see, if we're going to do that, that, again, will require adjustments in our lives. That'll involve a lot of adjusting, actually. Um, but the obligation is on who? It's on us. <laughs> it's on us to go out of our way, to embrace those uh, who, who don't understand uh, all of the ins and outs. But we must be willing to put ourselves out for others who are different. Why? So we can help them know and follow Jesus. And so that's the practice of unity. It's putting other people's progress in the faith ahead of our own interests. Now, if that's as hard as it sounds, if it's, if it's hard to persevere in that, then where do we get the power to do it? Where do we get the ability to, to keep going in, in living selflessly like that? Well, that leads to this second thing that we see in the passage, which is the power to unity. And the power to unity, it's in verses 3 to 7. 
And here we see that the power to unity is Christ himself. Jesus himself is the power to unity. And there's three ways in which Paul shows how Jesus himself empowers us in our quest for um, remaining united under him. So he shows us the example of Christ, he shows us our union with Christ and he shows us the welcome that we've received from Christ. See, look at the first one, the example of Christ in verse 3. Paul says, for, so here's an explanation, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, and he quotes Psalm 69, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So here is the supreme example of the strong bearing with the failings of the weak because there was no one stronger than Jesus. And yet what do we see him doing? We see him serving the weak. We see him coming and embracing the ones with all of the failings. And uh, Jesus used his strength to serve the weak when, imagine if he was a worldly king. What would he do? He would demand that everyone serve him. Okay, he would demand that everyone treat him as royalty because he is, after all, the king. And yet he came to serve. He put aside all self-interest in order to serve us. In fact, his willingness to do that took him to the cross where Psalm 69 was fulfilled. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. See, when Jesus was hung on the cross, all of humanity's hatred toward God was all piled on him. And he could have easily avoided that by simply pleasing himself. But he didn't. He, he embraced service. And he went to that cross in order that, a, that salvation might be achieved for us. And notice what Paul does in verse 4. It's like he, he adds a little side note about the scriptures because he just quoted Psalm 69 where we see the example of Christ serving us. And he said, it's almost like Paul is saying, you know, do you find that encouraging? Well, guess what? There's so much more encouragement in the scripture to, to be like Christ. Uh, he says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. See, because all of scripture points us to Christ. All of scripture is pointing us to what Christ has done for us and what he will do for us. And, and when we get into that, we're, we're actually lifted out of our little me-centred worlds to actually live like Jesus. And so the example of Christ, that's what empowers us to put others ahead of our own needs. But it's not just the example of Christ, there's also our union with Christ, which you see in verses 5 to 6. So here Paul, um, he almost turns what he's saying into a prayer. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So do you see at the centre of this prayer there is, uh, he says that our, our harmony or our unity together is in accord with Christ Jesus. In other words, it's Jesus who is the basis and the focus of our unity. So the more we agree with Christ, the more we will agree with each other. Okay, the bigger Jesus is in our thinking and in our, in our outlook on life and in our conversations together, the more we will be united in him. 
the more we embrace his lifestyle, his attitude. You know, the bigger Jesus is, the more united we will be in him. And that's what brings God glory. Uh, that's, you know, so when, when, when we get together and declare with one voice, which must be referring to corporate worship, God is glorified because his people are united in Christ, worshipping him together. So our union with Christ empowers us uh, to unity. Uh, but thirdly, we're also empowered to unity by the welcome of Christ. So verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now that verse contains one of the most amazing summaries of the gospel in the book of Romans. Often when we think about gospel summaries in Romans, you know, we think of chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 8. But here we have a gospel summary that's just four words. Can you see it? Christ has welcomed you. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Christ has welcomed you. And how has he welcomed us? By going to the cross for us. But when Paul states the gospel as Christ's welcome of you, what he's doing, he's showing us that when Jesus saves us, Jesus doesn't just save us from something, he saves us to something. He saves us for something. You know, he doesn't just save us from the penalty and power of sin, which is wonderful, but he saves us for a relationship. Okay, salvation is not just like Jesus opening a prison door saying, righto, you're free to go, off you go, see you later. No, salvation, it's like Jesus opening the door to his house saying, come in, come in, you belong here, make yourself at home, this is where you belong. See, he saved us for relationship. That's the welcome that we have. You know, once, once your enemy, once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. Remember that song? And so if you're saved by Jesus, he, he embraces you. He doesn't just tolerate you. He doesn't just keep you at arm's length, letting you be around. He actually says, I want you in my life. I want to know you. I want you to know me. I want you to enjoy being part of the family. That's the welcome we've received from Christ. He wants you to be in the inner circle. He wants you to feel like you truly belong, that there's nothing that can separate you. That's the welcome we've received from Christ. And to do that, did Jesus wait around until we had our lives sorted out, until we had all of our thinking straightened out so that we lived in a way that was always pleasing to him? Did he, did he wait until that happened before he welcomed us? No, he went out to us. He took the first step. Uh, step. He made the first move. He adjusted his life in order to fit us in. And what an adjustment it was. It's a big adjustment having to leave the glory of heaven and come into a broken, fallen world and live among all the mess and then actually take it on, uh, on his shoulders on that cross, you know, die for all of our weaknesses and failings and sin. That's an adjustment. But he made that adjustment in order to fit us in. See, that's the gospel. But what verse 7 is doing, it's not only telling us the gospel, it's telling us you've got to live this out now. Okay, if you've been welcomed by Christ, then welcome each other in the same way. 
Right? If Jesus could make that kind of adjustment for you to fit you into his life, then what adjustments do we need to make to fit others into our lives? Do you see what this is saying? Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, which means in the church we shouldn't be just tolerating each other at a distance. We shouldn't be always thinking, you know, who, who can I hang out with or who can I talk to that will meet my needs? You know, the people who are just like us, who share all the same interests and hobbies and things. No, no, we need to be reaching out, making adjustments, making room for each other, even having each other into our homes, which is why back in chapter 12 there was that, that command to practice hospitality. Now, this kind of welcoming, is it costly? Yes. Is it inconvenient making adjustments in our lives? Yes. Is it difficult? Is it, will it make us uncomfortable? Yeah, it will. So why would we ever do it? Because that's how Christ has treated you. And when you know Jesus has, has made the ultimate adjustment to fit you into his life, how can we then hold back how can we keep people at arm's distance, not being welcoming? You know, think about what Christ has done for you. That will melt your heart to turn you into someone who is welcoming. See, that's the power to unity. It's Christ himself, knowing what he has done for you, knowing how he has brought you in. But that's what will change us, to make us people who are open to others, willing to embrace them and serve them. And so the practice of unity, it's about welcoming others, it's about putting their growth in the faith ahead of our own interests. The power is Christ himself in the way he has welcomed us with all of our failings and weaknesses. But the third thing we see in this passage is that all of this is part of a great big plan. Okay, the third thing in the passage is the plan for unity. That's in verses 8 to 13. And uh, this plan, again, it begins with Jesus. See, verse 8. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant. And there's a, another point in that, but um, anyway, let's keep going. Uh, he became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Uh, so here we can see that the unity of believers from these vastly different backgrounds you know, completely different lifestyles, the circumcised, that's talking about the Jews, and the Gentiles, so people from all other nations. Christ came to bring salvation to both groups. And so when both groups are reconciled to him, what does that mean for both groups? They're now connected to the Saviour together, which means they're reconciled to each other. Right, that's why it's the eighth wonder of the world. How could these two groups be, be ever brought together? It took salvation. It took God's great plan of salvation to do it. But he has, and so the result is now you've got people from these very different nations, incompatible people, brought together that they're doing what? Glorifying God for his mercy. See, this, this is where God's glory is seen in these incompatible people united in the gospel. And then what Paul does, he quotes four Old Testament passages to, to make the point that this was always the plan. This was always what God was doing. Right from that 
moment when he said to Abraham, go, I will make you a blessing. All nations will be blessed through you. And then right through the Old Testament, this plan is slowly unfolding where, where we have every part of the Old Testament saying uh, that the Gentiles are going to be included. And that's what Paul does. He quotes from the four main sections of the Old Testament to say this was always part of the plan. That one day there would be every nation under heaven united together under the true king and worshipping and glorifying God. And do you realise that that, well, this plan is the hope of the world? Right? Every night when we watch the news, what do we see? We see division. We see fighting. We see wars. We see broken relationships. That's all the news is, apart from the odd trivial nonsense. But everything else is about division. This world is broken. And so how will it ever be healed? What hope does this broken world have? Well, here is the hope. There is a saviour who is the king. And he has come, he has provided a way to bring together everyone under him, people from all different nations under him. Which is why Isaiah, as Paul quotes there in verse 12, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles will hope. See, the hope for the nations is Jesus. The hope of the world is Jesus. The hope for you and me is Jesus. Now, the reason why, the, the fact that he is a, a saviour, a merciful king, who embraces the messed up people, you know, he embraces us. That's why we have hope in him and that's why there's hope for the whole world. And it's this hope in Christ, that's what will actually spur us on to pursue the attitude of Christ in the way that we serve others. Now, because the hope we have in Christ is that one day the whole world will be united under him, which means that what we have in the church now is a foretaste of that. Okay, when you see believers, like, you know, look around right now. Here are all these people. Why are we all here? What, what, what is it that brings us together? It's Jesus. Right? This is just a foretaste of what's coming. The whole earth, the whole world, all united in Christ. That's the hope. That's what's coming when Jesus comes again. <clears throat> That's why um, <clears throat> uh, verse 13, Paul ends with uh, this, this hope. He says, May the God of hope fill you uh, with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So this passage, it gives us an incredible vision uh, for what our church can be. Okay, one deeply united around the king. One, a church that extends the welcome of Christ himself to others. Okay, don't you want to be a church like that? Don't you want to be part of a community like that? Well, it's something that only God can do. Only God can produce that. And he does it by melting our hearts with the welcome that we have received from Christ. And therefore, the more that we see what it cost Jesus, the more we see how he has welcomed us in all of our weaknesses and failings, the more we get that, the more we rejoice in that, the more that will change us to be the kind of community that this passage is calling us to be. And what will be the result? 
that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, where do we see the glory of God today? How does the invisible God make himself visible? It's in his people, united in Christ. May God do that for us. Always pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Christ's willingness to make an adjustment in his life, to be willing to put himself out for those who don't deserve it. We thank you that he came to serve us, that he came to embrace us, that he was willing to pay the ultimate price to do that, to take all of our sin upon himself and be punished in our place. And Father, we pray that knowing that, that that would change us, that we wouldn't be people who are only worried about pleasing ourselves. But Father, help us to be those who who think about others more than ourselves. Help us, Father, to be uh, people who welcome others. We pray that our church would be a community uh, where anyone who comes along, anyone who comes into contact will see that there's something different, will find uh, an openness that they don't find anywhere else. And we pray, Lord, that through that, that many would come to hear this hope that we have in Christ. And, that, and we look forward to that day, Father, when, when it will all be complete, when all of your elect will be gathered in and we will be praising you with one voice through the whole earth for all of eternity. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.